0: Once a woman was sitting in a waiting room. It was her first appointment with the new dentist. Well, she noticed on the wall that the dentist had mounted his diploma. Of course, it bore his full name, but a name that she recognized. In fact, it was the name of a boy that she remembered from high school. She actually had a crush on the dreamboat. She recalled him being tall and handsome and dark-haired. Could this be the boy that she had absolutely adored? Well, her suspicion was quickly dismissed when the dentist entered the room. He was older, balding, had a little gray hair around the edges. His face was weathered. There were age spots on the back of his hands. I mean, this man was way too old to have been her classmate. Yet she was still curious. So after the exam, she asked him, she said, did you happen to attend Jackson High School? He said, oh, yes, I did. I'm a proud Mustang. She asked again. She said, well, when did you graduate? He replied, 1975. She couldn't believe it. The woman shouted, you were in my class. To which the dentist answered, really? What class did you teach? (laughs) Oh well, my! <laughs> and here's the moral of the story. Be careful of making judgments based on appearance, especially when your judgments are based on the wrong criteria. And this is what was happening in the church at Corinth. There were false teachers who came in after Paul had left town. They were critical of Paul. They doubted, they questioned his stature as an apostle. You see, in their estimation, Paul didn't look like an apostle. But they were using the wrong measurements. They were impressed by Greek style, Greek culture. They were using the marks of worldly success to judge a man of God. Throughout the first nine chapters here in 2 Corinthians, Paul has been patiently explaining his ministry both his methods and his motives. And he summarizes his approach here in verse 1 of chapter 10. He says, I am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So far, he had mustered a humble, a diplomatic sort of defense. But in chapter 10, suddenly his tone changes. He becomes more aggressive with his accusers. You see, their criticisms were more than just personal attacks on him. They were actually tainting his ministry, and it was casting doubt on the gospel, and it was time for Paul to take off the gloves. Paul's call was legit. How dare these charlatans belittle God's work in his life? And so, in chapters 10 through 13, Paul seeks to prove the genuineness of his ministry and its message. In one way, Paul's critics were correct. He wasn't physically impressive. He didn't have this overwhelming persona. Paul wasn't Greece's greatest orator, yet God had demonstrated his strength through Paul's weakness. God showed himself strong on Paul's behalf. You remember the story of Balaam and his donkey? Balaam was that Babylonian wizard who was told by God not to consort with the Moabites to curse God's people Israel, and yet Balaam deliberately disobeyed. He boarded his burrow and he headed to Moab. And yet the burrow was more obedient to God than its rider. For three times an angel blocked the donkey's path and the burrow swerved out of the way. Each time, rather than recognizing his own sin, Balaam blamed the detour on the donkey. He beat the animal three times. Finally, God pitied the burrow and opened his mouth. The beast of burden said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? In essence, who's the real donkey here? Balaam himself was the cause of the crash, not the burrow. But in opening the donkey's mouth, God sets a precedent for all his servants. As Christians, we are called to be beasts of burden. We're God's servants. We're called to bear each other's burdens. But that doesn't mean that we need to allow other people to mistreat us. There comes a time, as with Paul, when we need to be willing to defend ourselves and our ministries. Being used and being abused are not synonymous. You see, Paul loved these Corinthians. He would lay down his life to serve them. But Paul wasn't going to remain silent while they disparaged him and his ministry. And this is why Paul writes in verse 7. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? I mean, the Corinthians were great at jumping to conclusions. They would size a person up before they hurt his heart or even examined his character. And this was what they, was, they were doing to Paul. We need to be careful lest we do it to others. For 21 years our church has been, the 21 years our church has been in this building. On an almost daily basis, somebody drives down McDaniels Bridge Road and throws a beer bottle in the churchyard. It happens almost every day. When we first moved here, our youth pastor, Jeff, was in charge of the grounds. That meant that he was the guy who picked up the beer bottles. Well, when Jeff pulled in every morning, he would collect the bottles from up on top of the hill, and then he would dump them in his office trash can. One Sunday, one of our ushers, some of you remember Roy, he pulled me aside, he put his arm around me, and he said, Pastor Sandy, we need to talk. We got a serious problem. He whispered, he says, I think Pastor Jeff has a drinking problem. I keep finding beer bottles in his trash can. Obviously, Roy had jumped to the wrong conclusion, which happens when you examine, the only examine the outward appearance. At least Roy handled it appropriately. He came to the proper authorities. He didn't gossip or spread rumors like the Corinthians did to Paul. Paul writes, If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ's. See, some of the Corinthians had doubted that Paul was even a Christian. I mean, how could they question Paul's salvation? Paul was the person who had pioneered the gospel in Corinth. He was the man who had planted this church. Paul led the Corinthians to Christ. Hey, if Paul isn't in Christ, then neither are the Corinthians, since they were saved by the gospel that Paul had preached and embraced. Verse 8, For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. Now understand, the last thing that Paul was into was self-promotion. Throughout his letters, Paul instinctively shied away from ever sounding out a boast. You can read his writings. There's nothing that sounds like he's boasting. You see, the goal of Paul's ministry was to point people to Jesus and then get out of the spotlight. No lingering in the limelight for Paul. Paul never took bows for God. Yet here the Corinthians are forcing him to defend his God-given authority. And he does so shamelessly. He says rather than misuse his authority, he has used it for the Corinthians' sake. understand authority is not a bad thing. We need authority in our lives. But godly authority is gentle, it's kind. It uses it for people's benefit. Rather than bully them, Paul built them up. His goal was to encourage, not exploit the Corinthians. In fact, he built them up even by the letters that he wrote. Paul's critics accused him of writing with a poisonous pen, of authoring intimidating, terrifying letters. But these letters are what had jarred his readers out of spiritual apathy. These letters were what had corrected the problems in the church. He references these letters in verse 10. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. See, his critics were saying that Paul was mighty with a pen, but he was a wimp. He was tongue-tied in person. And believe it or not, there were some truth to these claims. There is a third century novel entitled The Acts of Paul and Thecla, and it gives an interesting physical description of the Apostle Paul. He was small in size with meeting eyebrows. Those looked like one eyebrow, look like a caterpillar crawling across his face. With a rather large nose, bald-headed, bow-legged, strongly built, full of grace, for at times he looked like a man and at times he had the face of an angel. And an interesting description. In other words... You were impressed by his spiritual, not his physical traits. Other traditions say that Paul spoke with a lisp. In a few weeks, we'll talk about his weak and infected eyes. You see, as far as Paul's fleshly features were concerned, he was less than impressive to look at or to listen to. And this was as far as the false teachers could discern. They noted his physicality, but not his spirituality. I'll never forget a local radio station that we asked to air our radio program chapter by chapter. The station refused. The station manager, as it turns out, didn't like my voice. He actually said to me, he says, you don't have a radio quality voice. Well, I knew I had a radio quality face. (laughs) I figured my voice was okay. I didn't argue with him. I just didn't think that it would limit God. And believe it or not, it didn't. Hey, God has used that short two-minute radio program on over 300 stations all across the country for over 20 years. And this is what the Corinthians were saying about Paul. His voice wasn't radio quality. In fact, nothing about him in their opinion. Nothing they could see was of great quality. The critics in Corinth concluded that Paul just didn't have what it takes to be an effective Christian minister. Remember, Corinth was an up-and-coming place. It was a boom town. It was a newer city, a prosperous city. You see, Corinth had this cool, this sort of younger vibe. It was sort of like ancient Seattle, full of freshly tattooed, shaggy beard. Girl pants wearing handbagged hipsters that were on their way to Starbucks all the time. And this is what the Corinthians wanted in their pastors. They wanted ministers who were hip in the eyes of the world. And the same is true for Christians today. We judge a pastor by his outward appearance. Is he slick enough, theatrical enough, entertaining enough, polished enough? Like the Corinthians, some people today want pastors with bling. It's all about flash and splash. You know, it's interesting. Over the last 30 years, the number of women musicians who now play in U.S. orchestras has increased by 500%. And do you know why? It's because today a screen is used in the auditions. You see, the instrumentalist is hidden from view. The audition is protected from superficial prejudices. Race and sex and appearance is all behind the screen. The judge's only criteria is the quality of the music that they hear. And this is how a pastor should be judged. Not by his style or his appearance or his speaking ability, but by the substance of his message. You see, the Greeks thought it was all about style. That substance could be sacrificed, but not so for a Christian minister. What matters is what he says. Does he speak the truth? Is it biblical? Is it spirit-filled? Is it a timeless word in the nick of time? Warren Wiersbe writes of a pastor he once heard speak. This pastor was eloquent, but he was void of biblical truth. A friend next to him summed up the sermon that he had heard with a verse. 1 Kings 19 verse 11. The Lord was not in the wind. Don't misunderstand. I believe in communicating the gospel as effectively, as appealing as possible. But the look is never more important than the book. It's not the splash. It's the spirit that causes eternal results. Paul writes in verse 11. He says, let such a person consider this that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. When Paul arrives, he's going to show them just how bold he can be. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Paul is coming to town. And once he gets there, they all wish he had sent a letter. He's going to lure the boom. Paul had been in the trenches. He had scars to prove his faith. His ministry had come at a cost. He wasn't afraid of the armchair quarterbacks in Corinth. After facing the beatings and the stonings and the riots, he wasn't backing down because of a few critical bloggers. He says in verse 12, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. You see, the false teachers in Corinth were always bragging about their ministries. According to them, they were more successful than Paul. But by what measurement? Paul says, we don't compare ourselves with these other pastors. In our eyes, they aren't the benchmark. And I appreciate Paul's thinking. Over the years, churches have moved into our community, and they've made a splash by preaching an easy, feel-good gospel. They use gimmicks and carnal appeals to fill the seats. They even peel off some of the folks on occasion who visit Calvary Chapel. And a pastor can feel pressure to compete. Recently, my out-of-town son, he told me he was looking for another church. He feels that the church he's been attending waters down the scripture. The final straw was them offering photos with Santa Claus after the service next Sunday. He said, Dad, their only goal is just to get people. Hey, when a church like that moves into our community, I don't compare. If people want a photo with Santa on Sunday, they probably don't want what we offer. We'll just stick to our goal. God's people need God's word. Paul refused to compare himself or to compete with other ministries. But this is the pastor's tendency, trust me. Comparison is a big issue. You know, one of the most difficult adjustments I had to make when I became a pastor was understanding that it is very difficult to measure a ministry's effectiveness. Tangible criteria can be misleading. Hey, the Mormons have a lot of people, but they preach a false gospel. Noses and nickels aren't the best gauges for spiritual success. Ministry isn't like a business that you can check sales or profit margin, where you can monitor your progress by physical measurements. Spiritual success is more elusive. It's harder to measure. At times, you're not sure if you're doing any good. Hey, you can even be doing the right things and get mixed results pastor can faithfully sow the seed of God's word into the hearts of his people, but that's no guarantee how fruitful he'll be. You remember in Jesus' parable of the sower, he teaches us to expect a 25% success rate. That's not very good, is it? He says some of the seed will never take root. Other seed will get choked out by the weeds. Still other seed gets burned up by the sun. Only a quarter of the seed actually takes root and produces fruit. Hey, if your business is making widgets, you can measure how many you make, how fast can you make them, how many can you sell, at what price can you sell them. There's a bottom line to measure, but not so in Christian ministry. In 1912, a medical missionary named Dr. William Leslie, he went to live and minister in a remote corner of the Congo. After 17 years, he returned to the United States a discouraged man. He believed that he had failed to make an impact for Christ. He died nine years after his return. But in 2010, 80 years later, a team of missionaries re entered that part of the Congo and they made a surprising discovery. They found a network of healthy, growing Christian churches hidden like little glittering diamonds in the dense jungle along the Weelu River where Dr. Leslie had been stationed. Based on their research, the missionaries thought that the Yanzi people, they might have heard the name Jesus, but there was no way that they would know much about Him. They were totally unprepared for what they found. The missionaries wrote, when we got in there, We found a network of reproducing churches throughout the jungle. Each village had its own gospel choir, although they wouldn't call it that. They wrote their own songs and would have sing-offs from village to village. The missionaries found a church in each of the eight villages that they visited along the 34-mile stretch. They also found a 1,000-seat stone cathedral. That got so crowded, it spawned the need for church plants in the surrounding villages. As it turns out, 80 years earlier, William Leslie had traveled across this same remote region teaching the Bible. Leslie had started churches and schools. For the 17 years he was there, Mr. Leslie, he fought tropical illnesses, charging buffaloes, armies of ants, leopard-infested jungles to bring the gospel to the Yanzi tribe of this remote area. And believe it or not, William Leslie died thinking that he had failed. Instead, his faithfulness and courage had left a living legacy of growing churches. Hey, realize so much of ministry happens below the surface, behind the scenes, where you can't see. And this is why you can't get discouraged in witnessing to your friend or to your teenager or to your coworker, you have to keep sowing those seeds. You never really know what's going on in their heart. And notice verse 12. Here's the big mistake we can make. He says, "'But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise.'" Christians tend to measure themselves or their churches against other Christians and other churches. How many people did you have on Sunday? How big is your building or your budget or your staff? We compare against each other. And according to Paul, this is not wise. Again, much of ministry defies measurement. You can't put a tape around it. You can't monitor its pulse rate. Hey, a pastor can be faithful to God's calling and to the 20 people God gives him, or he can be unfaithful in a church of 2,000 people. Ministry is all about faithfulness. And you know, the same is true for you. Don't make the mistake of measuring yourself and your relationship with God against what you see in other Christians. Well, look at how God is blessing her. I wonder what I'm doing wrong. You can't think like that. Or I must be more righteous than him. Look at how he's suffering. Don't don't let that come into your mind. As Paul says, these kinds of comparisons are not wise. God has a unique plan for each of us. That's why we shouldn't compare ourselves among ourselves. In a book she wrote, Peggy Noonan, she describes an encounter that she had with a CEO of a large corporation. She writes this, We're in his window-lined office, high in midtown Manhattan. The view, silver skyscrapers stacked one against another, dense, fine lines, sparkling in the sun, is so perfect, so theatrical. The CEO tells me it is annual report time, and he's looking forward to reading the reports of his competitors. I ask him why. Why? I wondered what he looks for specifically when he reads the reports of the competition. He said he always flips to the back to see what the other CEOs got as part of their deal. Corporate jets, private helicopters, whatever. We all do that, he said. We all want to see who has what. She writes, this was a talented and exceptional man. And I thought afterward that he might, in an odd way, be telling me this about himself so I wouldn't be unduly impressed by him. Surely he knows that what he does provides a livelihood for millions, I thought. This man creates the jobs that create the world in which we live, and yet he can't help it. His mind is on the jet. And this isn't just true for Manhattan CEOs. It's true of us all. We measure ourselves by ourselves. We compare ourselves among ourselves. And we use the wrong criteria. Why is it that it's always about what's tangible and material and carnal? Our eyes are on the jet. Or on the house. Or the car. Or the salary. Or the wife. Or the kids. Whereas the life that God has given us. It all has a unique challenge to it. Each one of us has unique challenges and trials and possibilities. The life God has given to you is carving out for you an eternal destiny. Don't you know He's building character in you? That God has eternal purposes for you? That the life He has arranged, the circumstances He's brought together... Is carving out for you something eternal and wonderful and your faithfulness to it will determine your reward? You need to realize that. What possible benefit is it for us to have our eyes on our neighbor's situation? We need to focus on God's will for us. As Jesus told his disciples in Luke 9, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Keep your eyes on your own field. Plow your own rows. Don't get distracted, especially by somebody else's jet. This was Paul's attitude, verse 13. He says, we, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. Did you know that God has a sphere for each one of us? Realize the will of God is not all-encompassing. God doesn't ask you to do it all or to go everywhere or to work nonstop. No, God has parameters for us. He has boundaries for our lives. He has a sphere in which he wants us to work. The Greek wording here, within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, it draws on the picture of a runner in a race staying in his lane. The Corinthians understood this analogy. They were sponsors of the famous Isthmian Games. A sprinter who stepped over the line into another runner's lane was disqualified. And Paul knew that God had given to each of us a lane in which we should run our race. We need to stay in our lane. And it's up to you to figure out your God-given lane. The word sphere can also mean portion. God wants us to identify what is the por- our portion of the work, to what place, in what task, for how long have you been called. And what's in your sphere isn't necessarily in my sphere. Perhaps there is a sickness or a trial or a hardship that has been purposely placed in your sphere that isn't included in mine or vice versa. God deals to each of us a different hand, but it's up to us to play the hand that we've been dealt. Paul knew the Corinthians were in his sphere. Notice he refers to his ministry as a sphere which especially includes you. That must have meant so much to the Corinthians that a godly man like Paul considered them to be a special concern in his life and in his ministry. They were in the apostles' sphere. They were a planet in Paul's universe. He cared for them. And this is how I feel about you. This church is especially in my sphere. But what's your sphere? The place to which you've been called? The task that you've been called to do? The time for which you're to serve? Are you being faithful in your sphere? Again, God measures successful ministry not by what gets done, but by how much of what God wanted you to do gets done. That's what measures faithfulness. Are you being faithful in your sphere? And then Paul adds, For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Paul's goal was to be faithful within the scope of what God had given him, and that included the Corinthians. This wasn't a stretch. Paul wasn't overextending his authority to speak into the lives of these Corinthians. He had gone to Corinth with the gospel. For 18 months, he had planted this church. He had written previous letters. Who knows how many hours he had invested praying for them. Despite what the false teachers had said, the Corinthians were in Paul's heart. Corinth was Paul's parish. And when Paul came to Corinth, verse 15 tells us, he was not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors. Paul never took credit for what God did through someone else outside his sphere. Paul wasn't a glory grabber. He refused to build on someone else's ministry. He would never take what another man had started and use it to promote himself. Years ago, we had a fellow who was holding a Bible study for folks who came to Calvary Chapel. I found out later, he kind of had it in the back of his mind that he could use this study to plant his own church. Thankfully, he thought twice. Had he gone through with it, he would have been building on another man's labor, boasting of things outside his sphere. This is what Paul would never do. See, Paul pioneered unreached areas. He went where no one had gone before. He planted churches where there were no churches, and God blessed his efforts. Reminds me of the great missionary to Africa, David Livingston. He once received a letter from England promising support now that new roads had opened up. Livingston replied, If you have men who will only come if they know that there is a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there is no road at all. Unexplored Africa was Livingston's sphere of ministry. In fact, after David Livingston died, the Africans that he had converted to Christ, they didn't want to send his body back to England. They felt that his body belonged in Africa. In the end, they did return his body. Today it's buried in Westminster Abbey. But before they sent his body, they cut out his heart. Because they said his heart belongs in Africa. And Paul's heart belonged in Corinth. Though he would go elsewhere, the Corinthians would always be in his sphere of ministry. He longed for them to grow. He says in verse 15, But having hope that as your faith is increased... We shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. Paul's hope was to sell for lands that needed the gospel. In Romans 15, he mentions Spain. Whether he got there or not, we don't know. And yet, Paul had a desire to go beyond just Corinth. See, he had an understanding of his sphere of ministry. Paul didn't just roam the earth. He was moved about by the promptings of the Holy Spirit. He followed a map drawn out by the hand and purposes of God. And he knew that his first obligation was to the Corinthians, to see to it that they were established in their faith. Verse 16 closes, And not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. Again, Paul was careful not to boast in another person's ministry, sphere of ministry. He didn't want to take credit for someone else's efforts. The false teachers were the glory robbers, whereas Paul's passion was to simply serve where God called. It was Adam Clark who once wrote, It is an abominable and deeply sinful for a man to thrust himself into other men's labors and by sowing doubtful disputations among Christian people distract and divide them, that he may get a party to himself this is an evil that has prevailed much in all ages of the church there is at present much of it in the christian world and christianity is disgraced by it sadly those words were written around 1800 and it's still happening today and yet in verse 17 Paul he exhorts us he says but he who glories let him glory In the Lord. Here he quotes Jeremiah 9, verse 24. Of course, the preceding verse says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. And isn't it amazing how little things have changed in the last 2,500 years since the days of Jeremiah? For what is it that we glory in? What is it that we're proud of? We're still proud of our wisdom and our strength, and our riches. We glory in our minds, and in our muscles, and in our money. We earn our degrees, and we get our bodies in shape, and we flow in our wealth. Yet Jeremiah warns, glory not in these things. Instead, the prophet tells us, let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. Wisdom, might, riches are okay, but it is the knowledge of God that is most important. 1 John 2 verse 17 puts us in perspective. The world is passing away. The best education, it gets outdated. Muscles shrivel. What do you think happened to mine? Money vanishes. Have you noticed that? That means boasting in wisdom and might and riches is an empty boast. If you want something of real value, if you want to boast in something that's really worth taking pride in, as Paul puts it, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. In this chapter on Christian ministry, Paul admits that the real reason to boast has more to do with knowing God than even serving God. Yes, serving is a privilege, but knowing is a pleasure. You recall Martha as she served Jesus frantically, running in and out of the kitchen, while Mary just sat at his feet and spit time in his presence. Jesus said, Mary has chosen that good part. Just knowing Jesus is the greater reward. And then chapter 10 closes. For not he who commends himself is approved. But whom the Lord commands. I love that verse. You can pat yourself on the back all day, we'll make a bit of difference. Christian musicians can win their little Dove awards, and evangelical publishers can bestow their book awards, and pastors can pat each other on the back and give out their Pastor of the Year awards. We can boast in man-made accomplishments, but all that really matters will be for one day to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and hear Him say these words, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's all that matters. Here's the ultimate measurement of a ministry. Not he who commends himself, but whom the Lord commends. That's what really matters. Father, thank You for Your Word to us today. Lord, thank you for the power of the scriptures. Lord, how you cut right to our hearts each time we open these pages. Lord, forgive us for comparing ourselves with ourselves. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for being worried about the jets or the cars or the houses or whatever. Lord, help us for not embracing the sphere that you've given us and recognizing That what's important to us is what you've placed in that sphere. The trial we're going through perhaps. The person we're to witness to. The job that you've called us to do. The family you've given us to serve. Lord, help us to take inventory of what is in the sphere of our ministry and be diligent in being faithful and in doing it heartily unto you. Thank you so much, Lord, for your word to us and for your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would help us in the days ahead to be the people that you want us to be. We love you so much. We thank you for this time. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.